Mr. Worf, my good Klingon sir, welcome. <laughs> what a pleasure it is to have you back with us again. So soon, haircut today, trim your beard. I would like my hair trimmed. Ah, a trim, of course. Not like last time. Oh no, just a little off the top. <laughs> no, took way too much off last time. <laughs> Space, the final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast, Give Me That Star Trek. It's ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 44 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and today we offer one of those alien race spotlights we occasionally do. We've done the Borg and the Cardassians, so what's next? The Klingons? The Romulans? Nope, we're doing the Bolians. Background extras or long-neglected Trek species? My knowledgeable expert is Ryan Blake, who's making his fifth full appearance on the show. Hi, Ryan. Hello. I didn't realize it was as many as five. I'm quite proud of that achievement. Yeah, well, you were in two bracket fights, and uh, yep. that counts. And then uh, you did the Borg Spotlight, and we talked about role-playing games. And this is a bit of a, it's an alien spotlight, and we will be talking about role-playing games as well in the case of the Bullions. I'd just like to say, I really hope this is better than Star Trek V. <laughs> it has its joys. There is an episode just on that. We're talking about Bolians. They're the blue guys that don't get very many starring roles on the shows, but that do start appearing from the TNG era on, you know, Mod the Barber being the most famous one. 100%. So why are we doing this, Ryan? Why are we talking about Bolians? Well, people should know that you uh, you and I are in a Star Trek Adventures role-playing game together. You're my game master in this case. Yes, now I have that distinct honor. Dubious honor. And uh, I'm I'm playing a Bolian in that campaign. So I'm not usually a role-playing game player. I'm usually a game master. I'm usually on your side of the table. But in this case, I am playing a character, and it is a Bolian. So we've both done our research because you have to cater to that, and I had to play one. So it just became natural to do this really a neglected species. You see them all over the place, but they're they're nowhere near as popular as the others, nor are they as developed, at least on screen. No, and, and they, as we'll come on to discover, they really are everywhere in Star Trek. It's quite bizarre how widespread they really are when you put together their various appearances. They breed like rabbits. <laughs> we don't know. But Bolians are named for Cliff Bowl, who directed their first appearance. Their first appearance was Captain Rick's in Conspiracy. It's the gross one in the first season. They're only named on screen like two seasons later in Allegiance. So this is an inside joke. The Cliffs of Bowl, they usually named a lot of things after Cliff Bowl for some reason. Uh, in this case, they named the aliens, which didn't have a name at that time. And even in the series Bible, uh, after a while, like around season five, they decided to draw up a codex of all the different alien species so that if somebody put them in a script, you knew what they were and you, you know, you would call the makeup by its right name. And the description of the Bolians in that is purely physical. It's blue, the ridge in the middle of the face, bald. That's it. There's no history, culture, mannerisms, nothing. They're very much a blank canvas, even from a production point of view. There are a lot of named and unnamed Bolians on the show. So what do each of them tell us about the Bolians. Uh, we have Starfleet officers. They're usually highly placed. Captain Reeks. The Admiral was Academy Commandant in Paradise Lost on Deep Space Nine. But we also had like Ensign Harrow in Allegiance. Chell in Voyager. It was a Maquis, but not Starfleet. What do we understand of the Bolians just from these appearances? Most of them are in the service industry, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, okay, so just to, to quantify, there have been... 80 appearances of Bolians across all Star Trek, mostly in the service industry. 
Deep Space Nine has overwhelmingly the most appearances of them. Most of them are people in Quark's bar. We've got two, or one engineer rather, and a security guard in Deep Space Nine, both of whom get killed, Bokhtar and Zimbrot. But overwhelmingly, they are in the service industry. As you said, we've got Ensign Haro in Allegiance, and obviously it turns out, spoiler alert, she's not actually a Bolian. She's an alien in disguise. Also, the only Bolian we've seen with hair of any kind. So I don't know if they were throwing the series Bible out to start with or what, because we've not seen any with hair since. Yeah, there is a mention of a Bolian with a toupee. Yes. So was that a wig? Was that something like a form of integration? I know the ensign was, wasn't actually real, but she may have been based on an actual person. Uh, and it was that actual person wearing a wig. There is a possibility that some do have hair, just like... You know, some humans are bald. We don't know enough about them to say this is an exception or if this is a rule or if they have different racial types on their planet or whatnot. Well, we do know that they are equally happy on land and sea. That's part of their canon. They have cities under the sea as well. So Chell in Voyager was in the Maquis. I don't know how much use he was based on his appearances. He seems to be a fairly... He doesn't really have any bloodthirst. He doesn't seem to have any kind of like real combative instinct. He was good at making jewellery. He smiled a lot. Even when he was upset, he had a kind of like dopey frown. I mean, Chell was he's probably the most famous. In Starfleet. Yeah. Um, he does petition to become the chef after Nidilix leaves. So even someone who's in the Maquis still has this Bolian instinct for being a member of the service industry. He goes from wanting to kill Cardassians for invading their homeland to wanting to cook for a bunch of people who uh, he doesn't really know. So it runs deep in the Bolian genome. <laughs> it must. Uh, because there's also one we don't really meet, but when, um, uh, you know, when Seven is incarnating different people that are in the collective, she's sort of tapping yes. into different personalities. There's an episode like that. One of those personalities, uh, one of the people assimilated that she manifests was a Bolian manicurist. <laughs> so again, they're, they're mm. playing on the idea that the, the Bolians are the service industry people of the Federation. Well, they are famous for having the Bank of Bolius. And they're in the Federation, which doesn't quote-unquote use money. They obviously have some understanding of, um, uh, some canny understanding of commerce. Here's one thing, kind of an umbrella fact. Having watched all the appearances of Bolians in Star Trek, we've only ever seen two Bolians ever face someone being upset with them. Chell, Tuvok gets upset with him because, or, you know, finds him illogical, because he's wearing that jewellery and he's not pulling his weight with his duties. And... Two seconds in a Deep Space Nine episode, Quark throws a female Bolian out of his casino, out of the Darbo wheel, for um, it's alleged that she cheats. That's the only times. Bolians, I think, no matter what they're doing, are interested in being of service and making people around them happy. It's an instinct they've got. Because, like I said, out of 80 appearances, we've only ever seen twice someone get upset of a Bolian. Statistically, that's way below the curve of any other species in Star Trek, even in proportion. I just wanted to sort of put that out there because you were talking about the service industry and trying to please people. Well, I think it's interesting you say that. And at the same time, I mean, in the background, yeah, obviously they seem to be involved in commerce and they're merchants and they're running restaurants and stands on Deep Space Nine. I'm thinking also of the, the, the doctor on Voyager. He's writing a book and his editor or publisher is a Bolian. So they're involved in commercial enterprise or commerce as we don't understand it on Star Trek. Obviously, there must be a way of crediting commerce with people who do have money. There has to be something in there, you know. So maybe the Bank of Bolius has something to do with that. There are mentions of uh, you know, of, of currency. Quark and the, the Dominion are, are in talks with, and they're talking about that kind of stuff in one episode. There must be something there. There must be an interface between the moneyless federation and the the moneyed outside universe. Yeah. There must be a way to trade things. Even if it's not necessarily money, there, there may be a currency that just represents the trade of goods and services and technology and, and culture or whatever. I'm totally guessing because we never know. It almost feels like a joke. They, they run a bank, but they're in the Federation. They've got a barber, but they don't have any hair. Yeah. Are they like a joke? You know, the, the basics of them were a joke and then they kept adding ideas to it. I'll get back to that. But it's like one of those composite aliens where like the Breen, the more you hear about them, the less 
you can imagine how that all pieces together. Bullions are kind of like that. So you say, and I agree, that they, they want to please others, they, they're working in service industries, and the ones that we do talk to seem to be fairly verbose, you know? It's like, they certainly have opinions, and I th- I'm thinking of Maud the Barber, who is the prototypical Bullion. Even though they want to please... It almost seems like they're written to be annoying. Chell and Mott are annoying to the Starfleet characters that we're following. All's well that ends well, but if I'd been in your shoes... Well, you know, that really does look very nice, Mr. Mott. I think that will be sufficient. You know, I must tell you, Captain, Will Riker was in for a trim yesterday, and he agrees with me. They have opinions yeah. about everything, but because, you know... So I, I don't think Worf wants to hear about strategies from Mott the Barber, but Mott the Barber shares all those opinions with him while he's uh, cutting his lustrous hair. They aim to please, but at the same time, in the context of the serious shows, they seem to be comic foils for over-serious characters in a way. I have two theories about the Bolians as a species. One fits in what we've always saying, and the other one is a bit more sinister. Okay. Shall I explode this potential truth bomb? The positive theory, which is more in line with what we're saying now, apologies for my pretension, but... I'm going to lapse into a bit of philosophy here. I, I think the overall philosophical MO of the Bolian people is something called utilitarianism. And an 18th, 19th century philosophy from Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill, which basically says an action is right if it tends to promote happiness and wrong if it produces the reverse of happiness. So basically it's acting to benefit the most people. That's, that's your sort of moral guide. If it benefits more people than it doesn't, it's the right thing to do. And as you look at the Bolians throughout Star Trek, they're in positions to serve others, as you said, service industry and also in Starfleet, trying to help the maximum amount of people. That's why you can have a Bolian in the Maquis, because he saw people on his... Col- now, I'm speculating somewhat, but it's, it's it follows through, logically. He was on a Maquis colony that was being terrorised by the Cardassians. So to benefit the most amount of people on the planet, he joined the Maquis. Because we see Chell... And he's not really a very good Mackie. He's He doesn't have any aggression or bloodlust or anything like that. And again, speculation. He joins to benefit his colony, the most amount of people he can. Mott, most species have hair. He gets to engage with a lot of species, talk to them. He may not have self-awareness and realise he's being irritating, but he's talking to them. He's engaging with as many people as possible. And he's not trying to annoy anyone. What, what does he do? He talks to the Klingon about tactics because Klingons like fighting. So talking about tactics, logically should follow through this will make wolf happy and as you listen to everything he says to all the other crew members he engages them not on a personal thing that he likes particularly but on what he thinks they will like they're community minded they're focused on the other exactly also they're quite cunning it's canon that the bolians outsource their gaming institutes and casinos and whatnot to the ferengi yes who they apparently had first contact with Long before the Federation. So that yes. that is also in there. The whole commerce thing, they seem to have been allies of the Ferengi from way before. So they met the, the merchant Ferengi rather than the warlike Ferengi from the start of TNG, maybe. Exactly. Now, now extrapolate from that. What's the one big thing, philosophically, that the Bolians and the Ferengi have in common? A slightly deep cut, but it is on screen. Okay. It's the fact that neither of them have really had much in the way of war. Like the Bolians joined Starfleet and so are in the Dominion War. But generally speaking, no one ever says, I hate Bolians. They might be irritated by them. The Ferengi, again, when Quark goes on about, we haven't had slavery, we haven't had war, not in our history. And the Bolians and the Ferengi, therefore, have that in common. They both irritate people and you may not like how they quote unquote conduct themselves on a personal level, but people get on with them generally and people don't fight them generally. The Bolians have had wars, yes. It's never really been about them. I just find that interesting, a different approach. Whereas the Ferengi will try and buy peace and, you know, use finances and everything. The Bolians will just try to be nice to you. Right. I think that's a, a bit of an insight into the Bolian psyche there. I, I, I think that is, from what we see, that seems consistent. Now, what's the dark version of this? I think everything the Bolians are doing is a specific and concentrated effect towards taking power. Because you look at where the Bolians are. You've got Bolians in the Maquis. You've got Bolians in Starfleet. You've got Bolians in the Orion Syndicate. Again, that Bolian may well have joined because he wants to please people. And on Orion, the Syndicate is big. So therefore, helping them will help people. We've got Captain Ricks, who, in the first appearance, he's one of the few Starfleet captains who knows about the big conspiracy. We've got the Starfleet Commandant, 
who is part of the conspiracy to consolidate control over the Federation and Earth during the Dominion War to prepare for the changelings. And this is also canon. Immediately after that episode, the Federation president gets voted out. He gets voted out. And who replaces him? A Bolian. A Bolian president takes control of the Federation. I think the Bolians are using their niceness, their pleasant demeanour, and the fact that no one ever thinks of them as a risk to seize power across the quadrant. Well, is it necessarily sinister? Are you saying they're trying to make being nice the Federation's prevailing? Well, I'm saying that someone has to be in power. Someone has to lead. If you are leading ethically, I'd rather have a leader who's thinking of the greater good and of others than of his own personal, their own personal powers and perks. But remember, a Bolium was in charge of Starfleet Academy, influencing young minds for generations to come, and he was willing to take part in an illegal conspiracy to take control of the Federation. As were many humans and probably other species in that conspiracy. So I'm saying, you know, one treacherous Bolian does not make a treacherous race. Well, yeah, but... How do we know Mott isn't pumping the flagship of the Federation for information? He irritates people and talks to them about what they're talking about. And he's saying, oh, Worf, you should do this, this and this. What's going to happen? At some point, Worf's going to explode and say, no, this is the best tactic you should use. This, this and this. Mr. Mott writes that down, sends it to Bolian High Command. Bolian tactics are increased in efficiency and uh, skill. That takes an immense amount of cynicism to view every single appearance as part of a conspiracy or a ring of spies when really why are we saying this about humanity when admiral layton was in that same conspiracy with the commandant because he was a bolian dupe and he didn't realize it that's what i think that's how insidious the bolians are it's just a theory yes well if you decide that the bolians are an insidious sinister race then yes you can draw that line we could do the same with any species probably and say that it's always like sinister so long as at least one member of the species has had like political success and then you tie it all up to that so no i don't believe that is as a bolian role player i do i don't believe that (laughs) this is correct as a theory i don't think that pan out at the same time i'm not against the idea that they are consolidating power but they are doing it incidentally which is to say that when you're nice to people people want to do things for you Mm. that is just the way it is the honey versus the vinegar some people get everything they want and it's just by being nice it's just by being you know of service to others in in those cases you may be promoted to a higher and elevated position because you deserved it, because people appreciate you, because people admire you, and for the right reasons. So it's not a power Mm. grab. It is a a normal, uh, especially in a utopia, you'd expect the sort of meritocracy to elevate the people who do deserve it. You know, we were shown a federation that can sometimes fail, and, you know, by Picard's time, it seems to have. By Star Trek Picard, I mean, not by... Jean-Luc Picard's time. I am painfully aware of what you mean. Yeah. But during the TNG DS9 Voyager era, we're at least seeing like a blooming utopia where aside from missteps during the Dominion War and such, people are making the right decisions politically and socially. As, at least that's, that's how it's presented. I would say that Bolians, by their good nature, attract good attention attract popularity, amass power, but not in a sinister way. And I'd rather have a, you know, a nice bullion in charge than a treacherous name other species. Human. <laughs> Human. <laughs> you know, and now the, that is cynical. The exercise you just did isn't wrong in the sense that we know so little canonically. You can basically put any kind of filter on that to say they're bad or they're good or they're, you know, working with the Ferengi all along. Each piece doesn't necessarily contradict the next, but it's just an amalgamation of traits. And we didn't even talk about the biological component, which kind of makes them sound like Bismalians from the Legion of Superheroes. Hmm. And I blame Voyager for this, but a lot of what we learn about the Bolians is secondhand. It's just somebody will throw out something about how they rear their children or how they get married or uh, it's just like as a list of examples, you'll have some sort of, you know, you'll have a character who will say, uh, will ask the question, what do I do about my baby? And then somebody will say, well, the Bolians did this, the Klingons do that. And, you know, there's a list of cultural ideas that, that sound like vaguely science fiction. And Voyager is perhaps the most criminal. It's DS9 that introduces the idea that they eat cured meat 
Well, rotten meat. Yeah, rotten meat, yeah. And then in Voyager, Bolians will basically bear the brunt of all the scatological jokes that they want to make. You know, it's all about yep. their digestive system and how bathrooms aren't equipped to handle them. And Jesus, Voyager. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit rough. Juvenile. This is like the information that we have, that they have like a cartilaginous tongue. And so it makes them sound like they can eat anything and that their biology is equipped. is toxic to many others. There's like these weird sexual relations with other species can bring on fatigue and nausea and what's happened what is this what they've decided is that their biology is probably corrosive i think it's because they vaguely resemble a shark because the cartilaginous thing along their ridge is kind of a fin they can eat anything even if it's rotten which means they must have very strong stomach acid you can even check uh, bolian's pulse by touching their ridge and i think it's supposed to be they look a bit like a shark Let's give them that kind of a thing. Bolians are sort of polygamous. They can have co-wives and co-husbands. I'm not sure they were comparing that to a shark because sharks obviously don't get married as far as I'm aware. But I think that's what it's supposed to be. And and like you said, even with their biology, they kept adding stuff in. Bolian blood is blue. It's similar to Andorian blood that they threw in. It's got cobalt in it. Vulcan blood can kill a Bolian. And isn't cobalt like super toxic? Yes, super toxic. The Bolians are the most sort of secondhand gossiped about info drop species i think of any in star trek their hearts on the on the right side as well that's something else we find out in passing too so it's all it's all people whispering to each other about and it's not the same as seeing it it's not like we have like this starring character who like discovering the klingon culture and biology through Worf or the trail through dax or whatever it's not like that it's just people like throwing out these things and and you're wondering do they have like a book somewhere that, you know, they write that in so that it all makes sense in the end? I don't think they do, you know? Even the fact that they come from Bolaris 9 is, to me, like 9. That is so far from the sun. It's only just a Class M planet. I know. How can it be that far from that? So then the sun must be like a red giant. And it's like, I mean, I feel like 9 is way too far from your star. But that's that's me. It is a tedious fact. Upon the fact that the Bolian homeworld has got three names, its location is still not canon, whether it's in the Alpha Quadrant or Beta Quadrant. It's still not canon which which one it's in. See? Just throwing out a tedious fact, but because both have been hinted at on TV in the background, but no one has concretely said it's in the Alpha or the Beta Quadrant. It's been in both. So. On the border, just like Earth. Eh. <laughs> Earth and Vulcan are on that border of between A and B. So, yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of stuff like that. Even the books... Like, the novels don't have a whole lot of Bolian stuff in them, but they add things in the same way. There's a Voyager novel that decided to uh, say that Cardassian oh, ladies yeah. love uh, Bolian skin. And they love wearing it. So, now, if yeah. you're wondering, here's an insight into our game, our role-playing game. My character has a sort of a value that he respects, that he will be compassionate to his enemies. And yet, when faced with a Cardassian, we're like, my character found himself in a a Bajoran camp and uh, faced with an evil Cardassian, he did not hesitate to basically slit the guy's throat. Sometimes I get carried away. (laughs) Uh, And that seemed very violent for the character. If you're wondering why, you know, Cardassians are apparently, I don't know, game hunting Bolians? What is this? I think that there is a, a limit to a Bolian's wish to, to please everyone. I think Cardassians are maybe sort of antagonistic towards the Bolians. I mean, even the most gruesome facts we could find out about the Bolians, i.e. that their skin is worn by Cardassian females, is mentioned in passing in a novel. In a novel, yeah. It's not even canon. But I did use it to motivate the character. I was going to say, I, I whilst I didn't say anything, I suspected, you know, as your GM, I thought, this is quite a turn. And then I thought, mm, hang on a minute. Siskoid has done the research on this. That makes sense. Because uh, I was almost going to say, oh, right, is, is this because? But then I thought, how do you casually drop that in? You know, you can't really uh, go to the rest of your crew. By the way, I split this Cardassian from the nave to the chaps because the female of his species wear my species skin as, you know, decoration. Spoiler, it was a stab in the neck and the guy survived. So I'm guiltless. But this brings us to the... <laughs> Brings us to the whole role-playing game element, because, and this is very strange to me in a way, the Bolians were mostly developed in the role-playing games, and specifically the last Unicorn Star Trek TNG game, and then Star Trek Adventures by Modiphius Games. Whatever work that last Unicorn did, which was a work of fantasy, 
trying to build a playable species, giving them the history and culture that they didn't have so that players would want to play them and, you know, and use them. Modiphius just basically said, yes, that's all canon. You know, they just repeated it. There isn't as much information as in the... Um, I mean, some things could have been updated because when the book is Planets of the UFP, when that came out, I think Voyager was still going on. So there's a lot of information in Voyager, and then there's information in Enterprise that contradicts, like all the Ferengi first contact stuff, that's not in the game. And I think that changes how you should view Bolians and how they evolved. So it's not in their history in the source book. There is space to maybe develop or update that information, even if you want to keep most of it. And the current game hasn't done that yet. They got the Bolians in the Beta Quadrant source book, but it's just the character sheet and what abilities they have. And so uh, my question is this, do you think that based on on-screen evidence, the games actually extrapolated the character type well? I think they extrapolated certain elements of what we've seen well, because obviously in the in the core book, you're initially meant to design your Bolian as a Starfleet officer. So again, to, to start with, you've got to sort of like keep that in your head. That is just like one slice of society, obviously. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and that's your baseline for a Star Trek role-playing game, obviously. And, you know, they're going into some details about the biology and everything. But here's the thing, and this is perhaps unflared to level at this, but it's kind of a flaw with Star Trek generally. But when you have a species all having one particular trait, which is part of, you know, the Star Trek idiom, and I like it, you know, Bolians are all understanding, they're all hospitable. They're always in customer relations or diplomatic services. I mean, it's kind of been alpha and beta canon that Bolians are first contact experts. So it's all consistent. But obviously, if you're a Starfleet Bolian, you can't really be Mott and you can't really be Chell, particularly, because you, you can't really be incompetent in Starfleet. There are traits, you know, we've got the Born near a warp core, which they extrapolate quite a lot from a throwaway comment made in Voyager about Bolian being born near a warp core means you'll have a positive disposition. And this actually gives you bonuses to roles in the game, which is which is quite nice. It's a good luck charm. For me, that works, you know, in concert with everything else that they've decided for the characters. Because, okay, that's canon. So what does that say about Bolians? I, I think that they've extrapolated the idea that they are a nomadic species. And so when they created the planet in the last Unicorn source book, they made it a, mostly sea, plenty of islands. So then suddenly you're thinking, okay, this is a planet where the people were all spread out or they were in small clusters on smaller continents, and then they had to explore. They have an explorator's spirit built in. And so when you we hear that putting them that close to a warp core, that can't be a very old tradition. <laughs> no, no. But it is a tradition. So how did that come about? Well, as soon as they went out into space they were already family units going out into space. They were already explorers. They already felt that being close to something that allowed exploration was a good luck charm of some kind. They must have had a culture that was nomadic, that was exploratory. And then every piece you put in, what they're doing with Polaris 9, is giving it a history and a culture, and I guess a geography, that explains all that. That today, they have all learned that teamwork is important, because you can't do these things alone, you know, by making it an ocean planet with great, a lot of storms and wind, and it's like, it's very complicated, and there's like four moons. So they, they've done a thing where the tides are complicated, and yet people were fascinated with leaving their island and finding out what else was out there. And they had to be more resourceful, because, you know, all their resources are sort of trapped under the seafloor or something, you know. So it becomes much more complicated for them there's no easy access to resources after a while. They did the same thing with the, their system. Their system is full of debris. It's, it's full of asteroid fields, and there's a, a dense comet field around the system. And everything seems very complicated for them to move about, and yet they have. And yet they developed warp drive, and yet they achieved, you know. So, like, one of the things that I think the game does is nail down their, let's call it, national character as outgoing, friendly, teamwork-centered people with a strong work ethic. When we look at a character like Chell, or does that clash? Is, is that like, is there a clash between what we see and that so-called national character? And if it, there isn't, and I think there's a good chance that it, it, you know, it works, 
then how did these people develop? I, I think the books put a lot of obstacles in their way. Their achievement is greater than perhaps even humanity in that sense, because they had so many obstacles to overcome. We don't realize how heroic Bolians are from what we see on screen. No, not that you're biased at all, but um, just to extend this sort of aquatic simile, obviously they, they're from an oceanic planet. Externally friendly, people like them. Uh, they're much more like dolphins, but internally, the way their bodies work, much more like sharks. And I think that sort of um, that's your feeds theory. into your theory. Well, that feeds into your theory as well, to an extent. Shark in dolphins clothing. Yeah. Yeah, but, and that feeds into your theory about when your character attempted to kill that Cardassian, not in cold blood, but very coldly, very directly. They've got a limit. They are dolphins most of the time. They're friendly. You know, you treat them nice, they'll treat you nice, they'll make nice, pleasing noises. Inside, they have the ability to be a shark, and they will cut you down if you cross them too far. Which I think also feeds into my theory about why I like to call the Big Bolian Conspiracy or the BBC. <laughs> and they do have a system that is supposed to be in a strategic place because the Dominion War has like this bowling operation and it's, it's important to protect the system and all of that kind of stuff. The books also hint at astounding anti-grav and metallurgical advances. That's what they brought to the table when they joined. Yeah, Crystal Steel. Yes, Crystal, crystal steel. steel. Yeah. And by the TNG era, Belarus has been a member of the UFP for about 50 years. Is what, yeah. is what this secondary source says. First contact would have been around when Christopher Pike first took command of the Enterprise. At least that's what the source books say. So yeah. information later about them meeting the Ferengi in 21-something, that sort of changes things a little bit. Like I said, it could have an update. And the books go on and on about this history of three continents and three peoples and, and how they were fighting and how the Federation forced them to, to have a like a world government and all of this kind of stuff that I'm not sure players need to know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> unless you want to be playing like this deep bullion campaign where you're actually <laughs> doing the politics and the, the wars and the history of the bullions. I don't think anyone is playing that. You know, you, you said I was biased. Uh, I'm going to say I had no real interest in bullions before the game. As you may remember, I designed a character to be killed off in the pilot. I wanted mm. to shock the other players and then bring in a completely alien character from the Gamma Quadrant. You know. And I ended up, I mean, I don't think we're out of the pilot, to tell you the truth, but <laughs> we're, still <in> that, <laughs> we're still in that first storyline, at least. My Bolian is sort of, you know, I've invested enough in him. I found him interesting enough that I want to keep playing him. So the idea wasn't to play a species that I liked. It was to take a species that was underused and it'd be a blank canvas that I could fill in the blanks. And that would have been my, as a normally a game master, I would have been interested in, you know, writing part of the story, so to speak. I would have been interested in world building because I'm a game master and world building the world of the Bullions, which we know nothing about or very little about. So that was my interest. The reason maybe I do have an affection for them now that I'm playing one, is that I do share their values. Effort is at least as important as result. Teamwork, productivity, into the exchange of information, dedication to service, filled with anxiety, but <laughs> bottling it all up. You know, the, those are the, the things that the source books kind of hint at, extrapolating from what we see on screen. But to say that the reason they're sort of motor mouths and they're so eager to please is that they are anxious and they fear that other people don't like them and they're full of insecurities, and yet they never show that. And so they have a very gregarious, outgoing, outward personality. You're saying what they're <laughs> bottling up inside is their sinister nature, but I'm saying what they're bottling up inside is is insecurity, is the fear of not being, actually being liked. I don't have that. You know, that's one of the things that I, I don't have. I have plenty of insecurities and anxiety, but I do not have the, I hope they like me. I don't care. I don't care if you like me. But I developed that early because I think people didn't like me and I didn't like. You either learn to not care <laughs> uh, or, you know, or you die. So, so I understand the Bullions in that sense, but I am like them and like they're described in the books. I, I put a lot of stock in productivity and, and starting a lot of projects and working on a lot of projects and, you know, driving myself like my parents were maybe workaholics and I reject workaholism, but hmm. I do not reject the, the work ethic of working all the time and being productive. I just reject the idea of that being work. <laughs> a workaholic is always at the office. He's making sacrifices in his personal life or his hobby life to work. 
And that may be work for themselves, or it may be work for the man. Whether you're a wage slave or an entrepreneur or whatever, I find that, like, toxic. So I put a lot of energy in what you would call hobbies, whether that's podcasting or blogging or whatever else. But that is still a, a form of production, a creative production, that I find more when I do work. The work is also efficient and productive and you know overachieving. But I can leave the office at the office. That's what the, the games have decided that the Bullion's place was in Starfleet. They are the guys that you want on your team because they are teamwork centered because they're overachievers because they're multitaskers the source book says it's like bullion tests in schools and colleges or whatever they use whatever universities they have are impossible for other species the, the programs are just too demanding i like that idea you know so the bullion that is just like that background extra is actually super skillful and productive and sometimes that may mean that we don't see them as characters because they're always working all the time and they've maybe sacrificed their personal lives and personal lives are what you want to look at when you're watching a tv show so that's why i come to appreciate the bullions even more by incarnating one of those characters of course you realize everything you said also means we wouldn't see them as a threat as well until it was too late just throwing that out some there. people are just not threats it is possible <laughs> not to be a threat. I'm sure it is. I'm sure that's exactly what the uh, Bolian shark maneuver uh-huh. is. Uh, I mean, I wish we knew more about their language, personally. I mean, we know what it looks like, but we don't, we've never heard it, because it looks very elaborate. Yes, and even it may be stylized, because all we've got is the sticker on a bottle on Enterprise. I think that's all we get. Yeah. Uh, so it's cool looking. I don't know how it works. I don't know. I like when we know more about a language... And a species. I mean, you got to know their culture for real. Then you can look at it and say, okay, I'm looking at, you know, Klingon writing and I'm saying, okay, yeah, it is a manifestation of what we know of the Klingons. It's all sharp edges and it's, you know, they all look like kind of little yeah. weapons, but it also look like runes because there's a Viking culture going on, you know, and sometimes it's like the Ferengi and you're going, okay, you know, it's like, what, what is their syntax and how is that? How are these wheel spokes? So you can ask questions. With bullions, we just don't know enough, and we haven't seen enough of any of that, and we haven't heard it. There is no, you know, vocal element. I think it's probably going to be, and in all seriousness, like probably quite high pitched, because if they're an aquatic species, well, they're not aquatic. So, I mean, they are land well, creatures. I think they've clearly evolved from something akin to a dolphin or a shark. You know, whereas we've come from various primates, I think that you know the way they resemble things. I feel it might be like quite high pitched squealing noises or very deep booming noises for travel near water especially if it's loud it's going to have to be i have the feeling bolian vocal cords are very strong interesting their throats must be <laughs> yeah well exactly yeah just like the rest of their system so yeah maybe i mean as far as like what words would sound like the only real thing that we've got is that they've got there's a prominent use of the Letters in, in our language, B-O-L, in front of things. Like all the yeah. cities start with bowl, and the planet starts with bowl, and the bank starts with bowl. And so I, I'm thinking that bowl, whatever that, that piece of language is, means person. Yeah. Akin to our people. But that's basically the only thing I can derive from any of the – even the characters, some have like a single name, some have two names. What's the difference, you know? We don't know enough about their culture to say. No, going back just quickly, because you were saying about their throats and we talked about their digestive system. There's a few uh, elements of Bolian cuisine that is mentioned in various shows. Bolian tonic water and Bolian tomato soup. And both of them are meant to be soothing, which kind of, in in a way, contradicts what their digestive system is like. Why would they need something soothing if their body can digest anything? It's just interesting. Again, insidious. You know, other species are soothed by their cuisine. I mean, the fact that it is contradictory because there is no real plan. It's just one writer after another writing in a, a stupid bullion joke or a bullion reference for no reason is not insidiousness. That's not the species' fault. That's what the bullions want you to think. Th- that is what we want you to think. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but everything could change if we got... A starring bullion. Yeah. Do you imagine that if we ever had a starring bullion on a future show, are they going to 
keep the RPG thing? Will they go to that Bible and use that? Will they try to make it all match up, all the stuff that's been said? Or are they going to just throw it out the window and almost start from scratch? What do you think? I mean, I think you have to keep some of it. Personally, I think if you're going to have a Bolian with an actual speaking part, you know, a substantial part, you'd have to make him or her the captain or the first officer because you would need to do essentially what Spock did with Vulcans, what Worf did with Klingons to an extent. I mean, obviously there was a lot of stuff before, but like he kind of codified stuff. Saru would be the the other example. Saru, thank you. Good. I was, although he's a species of one effectively, weird enough. True, but but true. it's the same thing for Bolians. What I personally would do is keep some of the biological stuff, okay? Give the Bolian quite a wry sense of humour so he can dismiss stuff and say, no, that's just what we wanted you to think. So you give us personal space. or That's why we've got, we're the only species with its own bathroom on every Federation ship. You know, something like that. And you can keep most of the biological stuff. That'll be fine. To start with, to do some damage control on the Bolian species in context. Because they're in a position of authority, we're more likely to trust them and have them codify and say... No, that's just a silly rumour. Or no, who told you that? That's nonsense. What the truth actually is, is blah. And then codify it, write a proper, coherent Bolian uh, statement about them. But here it is straight from the Bolian's mouth. Do, do you think the person needs to be that high up in the chain of command? Because really, any... They might not have to be one of the top two, but it needs to be someone... It needs to be bridge crew at the very least. Yes, I, I think like if we're talking about a starring Bolian, we're talking about, you know, any character that is named at the top of the show. I just really want to see a Bolian giving orders and having someone argue with them. That's kind of in the back of my mind. I just... I want to see how a Bolian handles conflict. That's the test of are they a person. In a way, I mean, whatever you establish about Bolians, that is just personal character, there has to be variation within a species. Not all Klingons are the same, not all Vulcans are the same, and not all, just like not all humans are the same, even though they seem to be a shade of the human consciousness. You know, all Klingons are warriors. No, all Klingons are from a warrior culture. And within that, you can have grown up differently or have different opinions or have different interests. But what is that Klingon scientist? What is that? You know, they're not all soldiers. They're all from that culture. So what does that mean for Bolians? Because they don't have a real culture. You know, they have the the culture that is defined in the role-playing games, but not on screen. So you can really do almost anything with that and then say, well, Mod the Barber is from that culture. Chell is from that culture. As long as that seems to make sense, you can't suddenly decide that they're from a culture that is that could not have produced those characters. But that's still pretty vague. Like in the back of my mind as a Star Trek fan, he is the kind of the acid test for a species, not a species personality exactly, but like a, a general overview. The scene from First Contact where Picard, who is angry and upset, says to Worf, you want to blow up the ship and run away, you're a coward. Worf looks at him and says, if you were any other man, I would kill you where you stand. Okay? That's Starfleet Worf's reaction. Okay? And I always think, if I'm writing a new species in Star Trek, and you replace Worf with one of these species that you're creating, or that you want to picture, get a concrete idea of, what's their reaction to Picard telling them they're a coward in that tone of voice? And also, obviously, they know Picard. And, you know, like a Vulcan would say, Captain, you're being illogical. You do not mean what you're saying etc etc a Ferengi might I don't know try and bribe him into not blowing up the ship you know what would a Bolian do would a Bolian try to be nice to Picard to calm him down bring him a cup of tea and say Captain come on you're better than this we're friends let's talk this through yeah I'm not saying all Bolians would do that but just that's a kind of like a good test for the species would you be happy with that reaction because it sounds like when you're saying oh then we can have a character that could contradict everything and maybe I'm mistaken, but I'm hearing that you're saying that what the Bolians are already presenting isn't very interesting, that you want that contradiction. The idea we're throwing out generally about Bolians is they're the nice guys. Y you want to get rid of that. Well, I want it to have an edge. I do want them to still be nice because I come to have respect for the Bolian people, but I want them to have dolphin on the outside, shark on the inside. Mm -hmm. I want them to have an inner shark, a point where they're like, I know what you think about Bolians, and that's that's what we're like 99% of the time. But we have a <laughs> this far, no further. The line must be drawn here. And that will manifest in different ways. Not everybody is nice in the same way. Some people, when they're being nice to you, may make your skin crawl. Others may make you feel at ease. You know, I like the idea of Bolians being overwhelmingly pleasant, but there's a broad spectrum 
of being pleasant. You know, but the baseline of that sort of acid test, the first contact test, as I call it, is generally a Bolian, I think, would try to put Picard at his ease and, and, and be decent and pleasant to him and not meet his emotional wavelength. You know, wouldn't fight fire with fire. I can see the danger that you're pointing to. I think that's what happened to the Talaxians. You know, Neelix, actually, yeah. the first episode, the, the pilot, he had an edge. You, you could tell it was more of a rascal. Uh, but then eventually... You know, he just becomes the comic relief. He becomes a teddy bear rather than a bear. There, there's a point where Neelix is comic relief, unless it is a Neelix episode where, you know, then we can explore different things. Normally, he's the comic relief on the crew. So the danger is that your Bolian, uh, especially if he's not in a command or like an important position, might just become comic relief. You know, the flippant character that, that sort of diffuses every situation because that never appears to have a stake in the drama. So here's my last question. In that context, what what do you think of my portrayal of a Bolian in a in a role playing game? Are we? I'm playing it like they say in the role playing game, and then whatever else I want to bring to it. Would that be a sufficient portrayal of a Bolian on TV? I mean, I think so. I think is he edgy enough? Well, I think there's a Cardassian with a rather nasty neck scar that would very much agree with Let's that. Let's say that's an aberration. Is it though? Is it? We're still in the pilot, remember? We don't know if it's an aberration yet. It's It sort of is, but um, I think like the character as designed, I put a contrast in there. Uh, okay, here is a species that they say is uh, pleasant, outgoing. The only people we've re- really seen in these roles have been barbers and cab drivers, you know, that kind of stuff, or very remote admirals and captains that we don't really get to know. So it's, it's hard to say how they got there or who they are. What we do get are like worry warts, like Chell or, yeah, the, the barber character that is Mott. Pretty much all we've got. The idea was to contrast that by giving him a position, like he's a security officer in this case. So giving him the, the violent position and then not being a violent character, being an outgoing character, being an artsy character, being the character that likes to program the holodeck, that likes to put on shows, that likes to plan the parties on the ship, that sees the ship as his community, that has always grown up on ships, that's never even been to Bolaris 9. That was all supposed to be contrast. Let's make like the most pleasant character, as they describe them in the role-playing game, and then give them a position where there is contrast, where there is conflict, where, okay, how does this character, the anti-Worf, plays the security chief? Mm. You know, how do I create a character that's going to be interesting is always to put two things, for me, put two things that don't go together, together. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason why he's now chief of security is because that was an envelope that I felt should be pushed. Am I allowed to mention the the character's name? Because we've, I don't know if it's conspicuous, we haven't said his name. Well, he's called Skoid, which is just like Siskoid with a few letters taken out. (laughs) <laughs> so so I think Scoid rather neatly sort of dovetails into my theory of dolphin on the outside but there's a shark on the inside because think about it Scoid is very gregarious pretty much everyone on the crew likes him I mean so far no one dislikes him at all does you know parties holiday and all that but what branch of Starfleet did he go into security the one far more likely to come across violence and have to engage in violence than any other department by a country mile. Usually we see them in more like engineering or... So, yes, to me it was, what haven't we seen? And what could I bring to the race? And I'm, you know, I'm trying... It's hard when you're stuck in plots to actually do the character building stuff. The character is still very much at the embryonic stage in that sense. But I want him to have that interior conflict, or it seems to be in conflict. How does the security officer who is thinking in terms of Bolian heritage and Bolian personality, how does that person do their work? It's not going to be like Worf, and it's not going to be like Odo, and it's not going to be like Tuvok. What is it going to be? You know, that's what I'm looking forward to explore. And that's why I really, at this point, love to see they've been in the background for so long. I'd like to see it's time for, for a Bolian starring character. I, we've seen much more extreme makeups being forced on main actors. There's no reason why we couldn't have a Bolian character from a technical point of view. And then we could explore that species that's been around for a long time. It's like, it, it's, they're a little bit like the Andorians and Tellarites of the TUS era, where it took until Enterprise to see much of them and still the Tellarites who I, I don't want to see. I'm not saying I want to see Tellarites. <laughs> but as founding members of the Federation, 
where are all the Andorians and Tellarites, you know? So by Enterprise, we could do awesome-looking Andorians, really for the first time, and have them starring in adventures, not as part of the crew, but still, you know, recurring characters like Shran. Tellarites, they, they show up from time to time. I do not want to see an argumentative Tellarite as part of the crew. Bolians, however, yes. I really want to see a Bolian argue. I want to see a Bolian do all the stuff. I want to see a Bolian as a main character in the cast and actually explore that culture and that personality and then give context for all the other Bolians that we've seen. I think we've seen enough of them. Like They seem to be important, productive members of the Federation and of Starfleet. So what's their bag? What's their story? I think we're ready for that story. And there's so many Star Trek series starting up. Can we hope for any of them to have a Bolium in them? I don't know that that's going to happen because they all seem to be happening in the wrong time periods. I don't know. I still hold out hope. Well, in Strange New Worlds, you could... The timeline fits enough that you might have an aberrant Bolian who has joined Starfleet, but they'd be more like a wharf. They'd be the only one. Maybe. Just throwing out that ray of optimism. Yeah, and it all depends when Section 31 is supposed to take place because <sighs> that's not clear. And then, of course, and Discovery could even do it because now they're in another century. And it's not clear if they're going to stay in that century, if Georgiou, who is the Section 31 character, will end up in that century, will find her way to a different century. When is the Section 31 story going on? They could have a conspiratorial bullion, like you want them to be, <laughs> as part of <laughs> Section 31. We've no idea where this is all going or if other series will pop up in the, the CBS All Access or Paramount Plus plans. But when they do, are they going to think of the Bolians? I say I hold out hope, but I have very little. I, I would be fascinated. Not not that I want to see a Section 31 series. I think it contradicts the point of them. But the idea of a Bolian in Section 31 would be a fascinating writing challenge based on how Bolians have been portrayed in the TV show so far. They may be very good manipulators. Well, say no more. <laughs> on that note, then, Ryan... Please pimp your projects. Tell us where people can hear more from you. Um, I'm on Twitter at RyanBlake235. My um, podcast, a Doctor Who role-playing game podcast, Wibbly Wobbly Dicey Wicey. That's at WWDWRPG. Um, available where all podcasts can be downloaded. So that's what I'm working on at the moment. Very good. Thanks again, Ryan. I know you have a Blue Man Group show to go to, but... <laughs> I'll stick around for subspace transmissions, that Star Trek news, and your feedback on our previous episode. Thanks for sharing your insights into the Bolian mind. Have a nice day, which I think is the Bolian version of Live Long and Prosper. <laughs> you too. So which is the hottest Marvel character? Iron Man. Ant-Man. I can't decide between Professor X and Magneto, so both. Loki. Is Wolverine Marvel? What about uh, White Tiger? What about uh, White Tiger? <laughs> Doc Samson. Who's he? Star Fox. That's a video game. The girls go on a journey to determine every Marvel character's hotness in Ohatmu or Not, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe podcast you didn't know you wanted. Available on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Incoming subspace transmissions. Update on the Emmys, Picard ended up winning a single award for Best Makeup, despite being nominated in four other categories. Short Treks lost out to Saul in the Best Short Form Comedy or Drama Series. Staying on awards, the Television Critics Association gave the original Star Trek its Heritage Award for Landmark Television Series. Past recipients have included MASH, The West Wing, The Sopranos, 60 Minutes, and The Simpsons, and that list makes me want to say Star Trek was unduly passed up for way too long. The third season of Discovery is set to debut this week, and I've been trying to avoid spoilers as much as possible, and I don't want to repeat the ones I did stumble upon, except Cat Lovers Unite. It's been a long time since... We've had a pet as part of the cast. Uh, that would be Porthos in Enterprise. And before that, there was Data's cat Spot. Well, the new character, Booker, comes with a she-cat called Grudge, played by a two-year-old Maine Coon called Liu, who is male because female cats are a real terror, folks. Liu has been described as a one-take wonder 
by his castmates, which is excessively rare in cat actors. You can follow Grudge on Instagram at GrudgeCat and on Twitter at Grudge underscore Cat. If you're a fan of Star Trek comics and have a lot of cash on hand, I guess, you may want to check out Eagle Moss's Star Trek Graphic Novels Collection, which aims to collect every single Star Trek comic ever published. 120 volumes are already out, and the collection will continue through volume 140, but COVID-19 or other reasons may have put the kibosh on further volumes, as no more have been greenlit, putting editor Rich Handley 20 volumes short of the original goal. This collection includes books uh, by Gold Key, Marvel, Wildstorm, Peter Pan comics, the newspaper strips, the British strips, and Tokyo Pop, even Brazilian comics translated into English for the first time. What the collection does not have is a complete set of the franchise's longest runs by DC Comics and IDW. Some, but not all. Could the collection stumble at the finish line? Strange merchandise section, a new company called Telekiad has unveiled a brand new license line of Star Trek Tarot decks, matching each of the 78 Arcana, both major and minor, two Star Trek images, one for each episode, give or take. It comes with a book and is priced at around $60 US. Telekiad is also offering the major Arcana as 22 animated series cards, retail price around $20 US, no book. As a Trek and Tarot card fan, I'm pretty ambivalent on these products because when you read cards, the imagery really needs to be more dreamlike to access the subject's psychology. From what I've seen of these, there are some fun matches, like the Guardian of Forever as the Wheel of Fortune, for example, but I find most others either very surface level or really kind of iffy. A new official Trek podcast was launched last month called Star Trek The Pod Directive, hosted by Tandy Newsom, who plays Mariner in Lower Decks, and comedian Paul F. Tompkins. They welcome guests from all walks of life, so long as they are Star Trek superfans, whether celebrities, writers, behind-the-scenes people, scientists, astronauts, politicians, and more to talk about Star Trek's themes and how they affected their lives. The first guest was Ben Stiller, and it goes on from there. Episodes come out every Monday. I think that's also the case for the Delta Flyers. I don't mind the competition, but do remember to come back every four Tuesdays for Gimme That Star Trek. Episode 43 was a reboot that episode in which um, myself and my guest, Derek William Crabb, reimagined original series episodes as Kelvin Timeline Stories. Here's a selection of your comments. Cruiser Dave says, Fun, I always thought the biggest misstep of the Kelvin Timeline was trying to jump ahead and do Wrath of Khan instead of revisiting how the changes to the timeline affected the original five-year mission. Thumbs up. Chris Franklin says, fun discussion, if only Paramount could remove their heads from their arses and see fit to greenlight some of these films. Uh, well, I never sent my treatment in, Chris, I'm sorry. He says, I'm particularly intrigued by the revamps of the Doomsday Machine, which I consider one of Trek's best, the Enterprise Incident, and the Savage Curtain, and I like how you worked in a bit of all our yesterdays in there. That is Cindy's, that's his wife's and fellow podmate, favorite episode. But sadly, the Kelvin-Spock-Uhura romance makes Spock very unspock-like, doesn't really leave room for poor Zara Beth. Uh, he says the Savage Curtain movie could even bring Kirk into contact and in love with Edith Keeler, roping the city of on the edge of forever, of course. That may be too many things in the stew, but I like it. And of course, when you grab the real Abe Lincoln from Out of Time, you're also crossing into Bill and Ted territory, which isn't a bad thing. And I agree, Chris, that, I mean, one of the reasons I, I did it was that Lincoln in space is iconic. It's silly, cheesy, iconic Trek, but it is iconic Trek. And yes, that's why I couldn't actually do all our yesterdays. There's no way to fit in or, you know, I, I wouldn't want to treat Zarabeth that way. She almost has to fall in love with Kirk instead. David S. Gutierrez wonders why we didn't use Jayla much. Of course, Derek did use her. I do like the character, but I replaced her with Rand. Not because I don't like her, but I was reimagining episodes, and Rand was in the episodes, whereas Jayla is a new character. Netministrator says, I was hoping for a mention of that time when Kirk traveled back to 1984 and swept an exotic island princess off her feet while they both faced off against a bounty hunter turned businessman of long ago from the Delta Quadrant. Because this is the way to make a truly engaging Kelvin alt tale. I'm not sure what you're referring to. 
Jack Bond says, Back before 2009, we had similar conversations about Mirror Trek episodes, or if a Klingon or Romulan ship on its own five-year mission fell into the same plots. I think I compiled a list where the moral quandary of the planet of the week was solved when it was conquered to serve the Empire. And Tim Price uh, says the first concept that popped into his head was Space Lincoln, and the second was Giant Killer Cigar. So... I somehow hit the same notes. The Fire and Water Podcast Network has a Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcast if you like uh, this sort of content and want more. Think about leaving a one-time or monthly donation. It even unlocks rewards. For example, for $5 a month, you could get yourself on the Starfleet commendations list like Doug Van Diver, currently captain of the heavy cruiser USS Eisenhower. Join Doug and I in the fleet at patreon.com. As usual, I'll remind you that you too can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com on the Fire and Water Facebook page and on Twitter, where we are, FW Podcast. You can also follow the show on Spotify. So, thanks again to my guest Ryan Blake until the next episode this is Discord reminding you to go boldly 